Hey guys, say it with me. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Are you ready to study Revelation? Yeah. All right, it's time. It's time. Do you guys know the Chiefs are playing today, right now? What are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be where the rest of Kansas City is. In front of the TV at the stadium or somewhere, anywhere but here. Guys, you're amazing. So um, we're going to study today the, what we call the dead church, the church at Philadelphia. Jesus has a, a lot of good to say about this church. But as you know by now, these letters contain good news and bad news. And this is the church that literally died in its sleep. So let's pray together, and then we'll have a little Q&A. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity again to come together as the people of God, to study the Word of God. Lord, we pray the Spirit of God. Lord, would bless each one today for being here. And that, Lord, you would transform our hearts by what we're learning, transform our lives. I pray, God, indeed, that we would be a church that is fully alive. That, Lord, we would never be as the Philadelphians that lived on that past reputation, that past momentum. But, Lord, the Spirit of God would be alive in each of us daily. Lord, help us, I pray now, to be what you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. The Church of Philadelphia. Welcome back to our study of Revelation. We're right in the middle of the study of seven letters to seven churches. Remember, these are literal historical churches that we're studying. Jesus is literally dictating a letter to each of them through the pen of the Apostle John that will be delivered them to read them in these various cities around what was in Asia Minor, what is today modern-day Turkey. We're on the church of Sardis today out of Revelation chapter 3. In beginning in verse 1. Now remember, we ought to be using these letters as a personal diagnostic tool for our lives personally, spiritually. As we hold up these letters to our lives, in some way, we can assess our own spiritual health. That's what Jesus was doing with these letters to these first century churches. As we hold these letters up for our day and our age, because these letters, of course, are open letters to every Christian from every generation. And so we ought to be asking ourselves, is our church like maybe the church at Ephesus that left their first love? Or perhaps uh, we're like the church at Sardis, especially if you're a Christian and a member of the church perhaps in the Middle East or uh, in Red China, the persecuted church. And so each of these letters really tells us something about the spiritual condition of these churches in the first century and perhaps our lives and churches even today in the 21st century, but what we're really spending time examining is the doctrinal application, how these letters prophetically picture seven stages of church history and how God uses these churches to outline the seven ages or periods of church history 
right up to the time that he comes to rapture away his bride. Remember, the number seven is very instrumental in the word of God. The number seven is God's number of completion, perhaps the most important number in all of scripture. We can see it embedded from the very beginning chapter of the very first book to the very end of the Bible, the very last book, from the seven days of creation to the number seven over and over again in the book of Revelation, the book of completion, we can see the number seven is very instrumental. So it should come as no surprise that God chooses seven churches specifically to write these letters to. Because by this time, in the end of the first century, around 95 AD, as John is writing this letter from Patmos, remember there were dozens, if not hundreds, of churches at this time around the Roman Empire, but God specifically chooses seven. I don't believe that's accidental, but rather providential, because you see, everything God does, he does in seven stages to completion. We're currently living in the seventh and last stage of church history, the Laodicean church age, and we're going to see how that Laodicean church really exemplifies the age of which we live today. So by way of review, just very, very quickly, remember the church at Ephesus represented that first stage of church history, the apostolic stage from Pentecost to maybe 100 AD. Now remember, these dates are really loose. These are not infallible, nothing inerrant about these. These are just kind of pastor feel loosely putting some of these stages together and putting some dates with the ages. We know there's overlap in between these ages as one stage would kind of uh, melt into the next stage. And so, you know, I told you a few weeks ago, we might go from the day of Pentecost even maybe to 200 AD. You know, when did the apostolic age really end? I personally think the apostolic church lived while the apostles themselves lived, and then that first generation immediately after them, those men and women they personally discipled. For example, Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John, who is even now writing the book of uh, Revelation. Polycarp was martyred about 164 AD as he was a bishop of Smyrna at the time. And so uh, one could argue the church of the apostles and the apostolic age extended well into the sec uh, second century, but just loosely speaking, the church at Ephesus represents the apostolic age, the church that left their first love, the church that began doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And that's what happens when anything we do is no longer driven out of our love for Jesus. We can be doing the right things, but end up not doing them for the right reasons. And that eventually leads to burnout or a blow up. And so a lot that we could uh, personally um, apply that letter to our lives. The second stage, of course, is the church at Sperna, represented the persecuted church from about 100 AD or into the second century to about 312 AD. We know there were 10 official persecutions unleashed by the Roman government on the early Christians. This was an age of unprecedented martyrdom. As many as 5 million early Christians died, horrifically martyred at the hands of the Roman state during this bloody history of church history represented by the church at Smyrna, the suffering church or the persecuted church. But then something happened very pivotal in 312 AD. Emperor Constantine was converted in 312 AD. And the church at Pergamos, the third church, represents then the birth of the early Roman Catholic Church from about 312 AD to about 590 AD. Now what happens in 312? He supposedly is converted. Now when I say supposed, there is no record historically that Constantine really became a true believer, a true follower of Jesus Christ. The reality is he was a shrewd politician. 
that was trying to hold together a crumbling empire. Now, we know he didn't really convert to Christ because he never gave up his title as head of mystery Babylonian religion. That's the title he held as the emperor of the Roman Empire. He was, till the day he died, a sun worshiper, not S-O-N, but S-U-N. And so what happened is this unholy mixture at this time in church history of paganism and Christianity, as in some way paganism was married to the church. As Constantine began practicing both Christianity and the traditional Babylonian mystery religion that he was raised with and was continuing to be the high priest of. I want you to understand at this time something so pivotal happened. What appeared initially to be a great victory for Christianity in 325 AD when it became the state religion of Rome, it actually ended up being one of the worst things that could happen because what Satan could not do through outer persecution he succeeded in doing through infiltration and inner erosion and corruption. And that is when many pagan practices began to creep into Christianity as pagan priests instantly became Christian priests and pagan temples then became Christian temples. And what happened was that it became an unholy marriage. And that's what this name Pergamus means. It means much marriage. And so you can see very descriptive of this stage of church history is Pergamus. The root word is the same as polygamy. As at this time, the church becomes prostituted with pagan practices. And that leads then to a thousand years of darkness. The church at Thyatira representing that period from about 590 AD to about 1517 AD, when the church was more pagan than it was Christian. What happens? You remember the doctrine of the Nicolaitans with Jesus said, I hate. He commended the Ephesians because they would not embrace the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. But by the time you see the Nicolaitans in Pergamos, the doctrines had become deeds. The Nicolaitans were those who wanted to conquer the laity. It comes from two Greek words, to conquer laetans, the laity. And so the Nicolaitans laid down an artificial barrier between the priesthood, the clergy, and the laity. And they taught that there is this separation between those who can really know God and be near God and the common men in the pews. And so what happened, because of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans prevailed at this time in church history, it became a capital offense. You could be burned at the stake for having God's revelation in your hands. To read the Bible for a common man was a capital offense. It could get you killed. It was an unpardonable sin. And so here's what happens. Darkness descended because the light of God's word was rescinded. You see, people who are held in the dark are easily controlled. And because for a thousand years, the light of God's word was withheld from common people, they were easily controlled by a time that became more pagan than truly Christian. Remember, knowledge is power. Whoever controls the knowledge has the power. And at this time, the church had all the power because they controlled the knowledge. And this is the time you might hear in history, not of the Roman Empire, but of the Holy Roman Empire, because this was a time when the church held absolute power politically, great sway over all the kings of Europe. The Pope was the most powerful man in the entire world. It's also a time where people were taught that they have to confess their sins to a human priest in direct violation of Hebrews 8.1 that says Jesus is our high priest. 2 Timothy 2.5, that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But you see, if I have to come to you 
or a priest like you to confess my sins, then, then that person has power over me and over you. And you'll see very carefully why Jesus hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now that brings us up to the church at Sardis. This brings us to the church at Sardis, and we're going to see today how the church at Sardis represents the church of the Reformation from about 1517 to A.D. 1700. Now, look at what it says right here as we get to study now the church at Sardis. It says in chapter 3 and verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. Now, what is interesting about this description, look at what Jesus says again. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Now, I want you to see why God so meticulously and carefully chooses each of these churches, in some case, because of their city. Sardis, at the time of the Apostle John in the first century, had a reputation that it was alive, yet it's the city that had died. 700 years before John is writing this letter, as dictated by Jesus, Sardis was known as one of the greatest cities of the ancient world, had a great reputation, just like what Jesus is here. You have this great reputation that you're alive, yet you've died. You see, Sardis was the church that literally was dying in its sleep, just like Sardis was the city that literally died in its sleep. 700 years earlier, uh, the great king that had made Sardis great, affluent, was King Crissus of Sardis. Now, Sardis was known not because uh, it was such a, a wealthy city or an educational center necessarily or a commercial center, but it was known for two things, its fortification and its elevation. You see, it was built on top of one of the mountains in the Ptolemus mountain range. It stood 1,500 feet into the air. And so it was built very strategically on top of one of these mountain spurs in the Ptolemus Mountains. It was surrounded on three sides by cliffs and walls 1,500 feet high. And the only way into the city was a narrow mountain passage, so narrow that the city could easily be defended by just a handful of soldiers. And so this city, under Croesus's rule, became very affluent. It was uh, a very wealthy city. Christus, of course, himself was very affluent and very wealthy. But at this time in history, the ancient monarch of the world at this time was a man in history as King Cyrus of Persia. You've heard of the Persian Empire. And by far and away, the Persian Empire was the greatest kingdom and greatest empire at this time in history. But Christus is very, uh, feeling very, very confident against the Persians because his city is so heavily fortified and elevated, so easily defended. And in his arrogance and overconfidence, he decides to go out and challenge the Persians for world dominance. And in his pagan way, he first consults with a medium. And he asks the medium, should I go out and meet King Cyrus in battle? And the medium says these words to Christus. It says these words, if you cross the river Hales, you will destroy a great empire. Now, Christus is emboldened by this prophecy. He crosses the river Hales to meet the Persians in battle, believing that prophecy was for him, not knowing that just maybe that prophecy was actually one against him because the great kingdom he was about to destroy was not the Persians, but rather his own. He's beaten in battle badly. The Persians turn back his army 
Croesus limps back to Sardis with his beleaguered army, but inside the walls, he feels unafraid and completely unhumbled. Uh, Cyrus, of course, is a man that uh, is very determined in his own right. So he follows Croesus back to Sardis. He surrounds the city. He's determined to take it and destroy his enemy once and for all. For two weeks, it says that Cyrus laid siege to the city and realized there's no way to take this city. It's too well fortified. It's too elevated. The passage to the entrance of the city is just too narrow. He makes a decree. Anybody who figures out how to take this city will receive a huge reward. Well, not long after Cyrus makes that decree, an army, uh, I should say a soldier in the Persian army by the name of Herodes, is looking up one day and he sees a soldier from Sardis walking atop the wall. And he's watching the soldier walking around the wall and the soldier somehow drops his helmet outside the wall. And Herodes sees this helmet you know, fall outside the wall and tinkle down several hundred feet. And then he sees this soldier disappear off the top of the wall, hops down inside the wall. And within a few moments, that soldier reappears, crawling through a crack in the wall. The soldier uh, from Sardis crawls through the crack, comes down outside of the wall, retrieves his helmet, crawls up back through the crack, and disappears inside. Well, all of a sudden, the soldier Herodes realizes there is a way inside. There is a crease. There is a crack in the wall. And that very night, the same soldier Herodes leads a small band of Persian soldiers up through the crack in that wall. They creep inside the city they creep to the gate of that city. They unlock the gate where the Persian army is waiting. The Persian army walks inside, finds the city completely asleep and unguarded. And that night, Sardis literally died in its sleep. And now you can begin to understand why Jesus chooses Sardis and this church to illustrate a spiritual condition of many a Christian. Listen, many of us are sleeping, and we don't know that we're dying. Do you understand that Satan is an enemy that is always attacking the fortifications of any church or any Christian believer, and he is looking for a crease, just a little crack to wiggle through, to get inside those walls. And exactly what happened in Sardis happens to many churches even today. And it was happening to this church at Sardis even in the first century. And to the angel of the church at Sardis write these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Now I want you to notice in these verses, we always see Jesus introduce himself in these letters with the attributes specifically that church needs. Listen carefully. If you're dead, what you need is the Spirit of God to make you alive. And notice what Jesus says. I am the one with the seven spirits of God. Now, you can cross-reference that to Isaiah chapter 11. I believe it's verse 2 where it talks about the seven manifestations of the Holy Spirit. There's not seven 
Holy Spirit or seven spirits of God, but rather seven manifestations of the Spirit of God. And do you understand that it's the Spirit of God that gives that which is dead life? When you were born again spiritually by faith in Jesus Christ, something happened the moment you put your faith in the Son of God, you received the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God gave life to your dead spirit. And that's what is called being born again. Now you live spiritually because the Son of God has redeemed you personally, and the Spirit of God has given life to you spiritually. You see, this church needs revival. Now, listen very carefully. This church at Sardis represents the church that is reformed. But what the church at this time in history needed was more than to be reformed. What it needed was to be revived. You see, Martin Luther at this time launches the Protestant Reformation by nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Who was Martin Luther? Martin Luther was a German priest. He was a Roman Catholic priest. But understand what happened at this time in history. Martin Luther and other courageous men like him who were part of the Roman Catholic Church had enough education, unlike the common man, to read the Bible for themselves. And where the common man could not have by law the word of God in his spoken language, these were men who could read Latin. These were men that could read Greek and even Hebrew. And Martin Luther, as a German, began reading the New Testament and realizing just how far adrift the Roman church had come from what is true biblically and what it was teaching practically. And the worst thing that was happening that Martin Luther had just a belly full of was the teaching of the selling of indulgences. And what the church was teaching was that if you paid enough money and gave enough money to the church, you could literally pay your way into heaven and pay your way out of purgatory. And if you gave enough money, while well, you could actually pay for your dead relatives to get out of purgatory and eventually go to heaven. And he had an absolute belly full of this because he ran across, you know, passages, for example, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, Titus 3 and verse 5, not by works of righteousness we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us. And so he has 95 theses here. He didn't want to be kicked out of the church. He didn't want to eliminate the church. He wanted to reform the church and bring the church back to the Bible as opposed to what amounted to such pagan practices that were unbiblical and just plain corruption inwardly, even though there, there, there was this appearance of being religious outwardly. Well, the church would hear nothing of it. They excommunicated Martin Luther from the church in 1517, and that is when he took his 95 theses, marching up the steps of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, nailing it to the door. 95 doctrines that he wanted to reform about the church, that the church was teaching unbiblically. And you know the number one of the 95 on that list of 95 doctrines was fida sola, faith alone, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are forgiven of our sins solely because of what Jesus did at Calvary. And when he did indeed nail the 95 theses to that door in Wittenberg, Germany, the Protestant Reformation was born. And along that same time, something else was happening that was lifting the cloud of darkness that had hung for a thousand years. Something was being improved upon. An invention in 1440 was being improved upon at this time in the early 1500s. 
and it was literally going to change the world. And you know what that invention was? It was the printing press. Do you understand that the printing press in the 1500s was for them what I believe the internet is for us? In the same way the internet has radically changed all of world history and humanity in the 21st century, do you know the printing press did that very same thing in the 16th century? Radically changed everything. You know why? Because now for the first time, common men were reading the Word of God in their spoken language. The very first book to roll off the printing press was indeed the Bible. And because of courageous men like William Tyndale, they were translating the Word of God into the spoken language of the day, whether it was English or whether it was German or whether it was French. And so for the first time in hundreds and hundreds of years, the Word of God is in the hands of common men, and they're reading the Word of God in their spoken language, and all of a sudden the church is losing control. You know why? Because knowledge is power. And all of a sudden, men and women who are just common, ordinary people have the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the Word of God. And so all of a sudden, they have the power of God, and they can no longer be controlled and manipulated and intimidated. And along about that same time, not only was Martin Luther doing this in Germany, but other men were doing it in other countries of Europe. Zwingli, for example, was in Switzerland, what Martin Luther was in Germany, John Calvin was in France, what Zwingli was in Switzerland, John Knox was in Scotland, what Calvin was in France. These were Catholic priests who were joining in this movement to reform the church. Each of them would be excommunicated. Some of them would be martyred be because of the stand that they took. But what is remarkable about this is even these reformers didn't fully agree even with each other. I mean, this was not a time of revival, it was a time of reformation, and they're not the same things. It should come as no surprise that, for example, Luther and Zwingli, they didn't get along with each other, they didn't agree with each other, specifically over the doctrine of transubstantiation. All right, what is transubstantiation? Some of you know, if you came from perhaps a Protestant background like Lutheran or Roman Catholicism, transubstantiation teaches that when we take communion, the wine literally becomes the blood of Jesus and the bread literally becomes the body of Jesus, right? So Zwingli said, no, that's not biblical. Martin Luther said, yes, it is. Now, where did Martin Luther bring that from? He brought it from his Roman Catholic background. The reality is it's not biblical. Jesus said in John chapter 6, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. But then he said in John 6 and verse 36, the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life, meaning he was speaking spiritually, not literally. And so there was still great disagreement theologically, even among the reformers at this time in history. They didn't get along with each other. You have, uh, you know, Luther didn't like Zwingli. Neither of them liked John Calvin. You've heard of John Calvin, of course, who authored what is today still with us, a very popular theological teaching called Calvinism. So you have these, uh, these kind of in-house debates theologically going on at this time in history. This was a time where Catholics were persecuting Protestant. Protestants were persecuting Catholics. This was a time for a thousand years. Just understand, if somebody disagreed with you religiously, if you could, you killed them. And that's exactly what was going on even then. Even among the reformers, you see the church at Sardis is not a description of revival it's a description of reformation that still is not bringing real life because what you have is a time of dead orthodoxy 
In other words, you have a time where these theologians are correcting, and there's a course correction doctrinally, and there's this reformation theologically, but there's still no real life-giving power yet for humanity. And look at what Jesus says, and this is why he says that I'm convinced. He says, he says, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. He says that are ready to die. For I have not found your works, look at it, perfect before God. That word perfect is the same word as complete. Understand what Jesus is teaching. Their works weren't perfect or incomplete. In other words, they started a good thing, but they didn't fully finish that thing. And the reason why we can say is that for many of them, they continue to hold to some of their Roman Catholic teachings. For example, even though biblically transubstantiation is not true, Martin Luther taught it till the day he died, which is why even today Lutherans believe in transubstantiation. I should know, I married a good Lutheran girl. And by the way, there are great and godly people within the Lutheran denomination, within the Presbyterian denomination, and some of these other denominations of the Reformation. Don't misunderstand. There are beautiful godly people within all of these Protestant denominations, and I might even add again Roman Catholicism. But here's the reality. Some of what is taught in every church, in every tradition, in every denominational affiliation is not necessarily biblical doctrine. And that would be an example. Transubstantiation was Roman Catholic tradition that is still taught even today by some Protestant denominations. Martin Luther, till the day he died, was baptizing infants, even though there's no biblical precedence anywhere in the Bible for infant baptism. What you see in the Bible about baptism is it was always after belief, but not before belief. And so you can begin to see why Jesus said their works were incomplete. Uh, they didn't go far enough. And that is why even today, 500 years later, for many Protestant denominations, they continue to hold to certain traditions that isn't necessarily biblical doctrine. For example, they all still will sprinkle their babies. And I'm not saying, again, if you were sprinkled as a baby, you're a bad Christian. What I am saying is that is tradition, but it's not really biblical doctrine. There's no precedence in it biblically. And so that is why you see this is a time of dead orthodoxy where Jesus says your works are incomplete. Not only were their works incomplete, but in many ways, listen carefully, the reformers were guilty of some of the same sins of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm talking about persecuting each other's followers, not just Roman Catholics, but even Protestants. This was a time where if a Roman Catholic king was in power, a Roman Catholic queen rose to the throne, she would persecute the Protestants, he would persecute the Protestants. You maybe have heard of Bloody Mary of Scotland. Uh, this is a time where if it was a Protestant that rose to power and a Protestant was sitting on the throne, it would be persecution for Catholics. And the remarkable thing is they were persecuting each other. Do you realize it was Zwingli who personally presided over the execution of 30 Anabaptists having the Anabaptists thrown into a river where they would drown? Who were the Anabaptists? The Anabaptists, understand, were not part of the Protestant Reformation. Anabaptists traced their roots back to little pockets of Europeans that existed throughout a thousand years of dark ages, 
who had just enough light of the truth to know the difference between true Christianity in some fashion and what had been taught that had become increasingly more pagan and specifically had to do with the doctrine of baptism. They rejected the idea of baptismal regeneration, meaning you have to be baptized to be forgiven of your sin, baptized in water. They believed, you know, 1 John 1 and verse 7, that there is one thing that washes away our sin. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And so they took a stand on this area of baptism. Their enemies began calling them Anabaptists in the 1500s. It was a growing movement during the Protestant Reformation, a movement all of its own. Because unlike even the Reformers, they refused to baptize their infants. They became known as Anabaptists. Anna is a prefix. It means re. So Anabaptist literally means re-baptizer because they would baptize their children again after having been forced to baptize them in infancy. And so you have the Catholic Church that hates the Anabaptists. You have the Reformers that hate the Anabaptists. But by the 1530s, they were all over Europe. And there were thousands and thousands, and their numbers were growing still more. And the reason why is men and women had the Word of God now more and more accessible in their spoken tongue. Increasingly, they could have access to the light and the revelation of God's Word. You see, this was a time of reformation, but not revival. And those things are not the same thing. Why were the Reformers persecuting Anabaptists? Why were the Catholics persecuting the Reformers? And vice versa, I'll tell you why. Because the church was dead, and it was not yet fully alive. You see, something that is dead needs more than to be reformed. It needs revived. And it's not yet revived, even though it is indeed being reformed. And we can begin to see, incidentally, just in this time of church history, the various family trees spiritually, denominationally. Uh, where do Lutherans come from today? It's, of course, Martin Luther, after he was excommunicated, launched a new movement called Lutherans, which still exists today. John Knox was burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church, excommunicated as a Catholic priest. But before he was burned at the stake, he launched what we call today the Presbyterian movement. Uh, who were the Anabaptists? Where did they come from? Well, John Smith was his name in the early 1600s. He was an Anglican priest, a Church of England man. But all of a sudden, he too began to read the scripture. And he was born again. And uh, he was under such persecution from the church in England at that time that he moved he and his followers to Holland. Holland at the time... Uh, was somewhat of a religious refugee system from all over Europe. And it was kind of where religious refugees would come, where they could find a little bit of perhaps peace from the persecution. It was there that John Smith encounters a man by the name of Minno Simmons. Minno Simmons himself had been a Roman Catholic priest, but got a hold of the Bible. He too was born again. And Minno Simmons was preaching salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And it was then that John Smith encounters Menno Simmons, and John Smith is baptized biblically then by immersion and some of his followers. Now what happens a few years later is that John Smith and some of his followers go back to England because they did not want to become Mennonites. And back in England, they dropped the prefix Anna, and the first Baptist church was born. I want you to see, Baptists, unlike maybe Presbyterians and Lutherans, were never part of the Reformation. They were never protesting anything. Uh, they come from a different family tree spiritually. 
The Mennonites, by the way, go back to this man, Menno Simmons. You see, if you're a Baptist, you have the same family tree as modern-day Mennonites and even Amish. What I find very, very interesting. Now listen very carefully. Sardis means red. You know why? Because this is a period that is written in blood. As the Catholic Church began losing control, what did they do? They held on tighter and tighter and tighter. This is a time of intense persecution, a time of the Spanish Inquisitions, a time where increasing numbers of people were martyred by the church and burnt at the stake, uh, dying horrific deaths, not only at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church, but sometimes at the hands of the Reformers themselves. It was a time literally like those early days of Christianity that were written in blood. But what I think is the greatest tragedy and an absolute travesty is this was not pagan people like the Romans persecuting the early Christians. This was Christians persecuting Christians. And you can see why this church appears outwardly to be alive, but Jesus says you have died and you're dead. And it's a time that was reformation, but it was not a time of true repentance. And that is what Jesus now petitions this church to do. He says in verse 2, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you'll not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You know what Jesus is teaching? Listen, it does not matter how dark the days or how much it may appear that there is no hope. There is a remnant in every generation. There's a remnant of true followers in every church, a remnant of true followers in every church age. And Jesus says, you have a few who have not defiled their garments with false theology, who have not defiled their garments with pagan practices and worldliness and carnality. He says in verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. You know that every human being's name is written originally in the book of life. Do you know that God has not destined anyone to die and go to hell? God has destined everyone to know him and be near him and to live forever eternal life. You see, if your name is not in the book of life when you stand before Jesus, it's not because it never was. It's because it was one time blotted out by your decision to reject him. It says in verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen very carefully. We live at a time where many churches appear to be alive, not knowing that they've already died. How is it that sometimes churches that are blowing and going and fully alive, just within 10 or 20 years, it appears that they've died. They're just a monument to what they used to be. Well, I've said before, the growth of the church goes something like this, begins with a man, it becomes a movement. That movement at some point becomes a machine, and that machine then becomes a monument. And that is what had happened in the life cycle of the church, not just a church. Remember, it began with a man. That man was Jesus who launched this movement when he said that upon this rock himself, he'd build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail. And with those words, he launched a movement 
that changed the world. And the book of Acts is a record of that movement that began with a man. But somewhere along the way, that movement became a machine. You know when it became a machine? It's when that movement became more than about a man or men. All of a sudden, that machine became a, an institution. No longer was it about a mission. And all of a sudden, it became more about tradition and personal opinion and trying to hang on to the power of the institution. And all of a sudden, that machine then becomes a monument. It's now living on its past reputation. Friends, listen carefully. What's true of the church at this time in history can be true of our church, can be true of your church. How do we have it that churches die even when they have the right theology? And remember, that's what happened here at this time in history. There was a, a return to right theology. Now, it wasn't a return completely, but it was a step in the right direction. And I would contend it happens even today. When a church puts more emphasis on Bible study and having the right theology than it does reaching the souls of men and women for eternity. That is a church that is in danger of dying. You see, what keeps the church fully alive is when we are focused outwardly. But when we start to focus inwardly, I will promise you we begin to atrophy spiritually. And that's why it can happen so subtly and so slowly. And churches that were once blowing and going and fully alive for Jesus, and there was a move of God happening and lives were changing, Within just a few years, all of that has changed, and it's just a shell of what it used to be. Listen, let's have our Bible study, and that's why we're here. And let's, by all means, study so that we can have pure theology. But remember, if it doesn't compel you to give your life for the Great Commission, to give your life for this mission of redemption, then in the end, you are still just a dead Christian. Love you very much. I'll see you next time. And there's the church of Sardis. As you can see, there's so much, I think, to apply to our lives personally, don't you? Because we're all in danger, quite frankly. When we become more about theology than we are about the souls of men and reaching them for eternity, you know what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 5, having the form of godliness but denying the power thereof. You see, that was the church of the Reformation. That was the church of Sardis. Lived on this past momentum, this past reputation. And very much like that city 700 years earlier, they allowed just a crack in the wall, just a little crease for the enemy to creep in. The city died in its sleep. Many churches literally have died in their sleep that once were blown and going, fully alive, but they live on that past momentum. I've talked before about, you know, our church and our vision. We need a vision that demands divine intervention that keeps us in this state of desperation. Churches quit having that state of desperation because they lose that vision. They no longer need divine intervention. And what happens then is the law of inertia. You know what the law of inertia says? Things in motion tend to stay in motion. Things at rest tend to stay at rest. You know, I've always feared our church ever coming to a stop. You know why? Because the law of inertia says it's going to be really hard to get it moving again if we ever let it stop. And that's why I've said before, one finish line must become the next starting line. Because in the end, that's what a movement is made of. And it's that movement that keeps it being 
alive with God's spirit, lest it ever becomes a machine. A machine can keep things moving, can it? But a machine is just working on past momentum, past reputation. And so you can be seen to see why Sardis, I think, is such a great description of the church at the Reformation. They did such great work. They started so well. I mean, the Reformers, honestly, were courageous men. They really were, and we should commend them, and, and we should revere them for what they did do. But Jesus is now challenging them and saying, it's not what you did, but rather what you didn't do. That's the problem. You didn't go far enough. You didn't take it far enough. This was a time in church history where, you know, all the church meetings and church councils of, you know, the pillars of the church, it was all about theology. There was no meeting, not yet, related to the Great Commission and how can we take the gospel to all nations. You see, that's what made the church of the first century alive. That's what made it a movement because the vision was all about the mission. There was not one meeting after another with this church council and the in-house debates theologically. They didn't talk about that, not really, not often. It was all about strategy for multiplication, reproduction, reaching the world and reaching the nations. The Church of the Reformation, they haven't got there yet. Now we're going to see next time the Church at Philadelphia. And all of a sudden, that's the Church of the Open Door. That's when the rebirth of modern-day missions occurs. All right, questions, thoughts, comments, anybody? Yep, up front, Martin. How about here first, and then we'll come over here, okay? It's kind of a confusing question, but how, and I've been thinking about this the whole drive up here. How long was the uh, earth alive before Jesus died until the 70 years that he returns? How long was the earth alive until when? Until the crucifixion, until he died. Until he died? Yeah. So how long was the earth here before Jesus died? Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out the seventh year. Like I said, it's a confusing question. Maybe I'm not asking it correctly. Okay. Well, let's try to answer it. If I'm not, just stop me, okay? So how long was the church here? at the time of Christ yeah how long was the earth here okay how long was the earth here until the time of Christ yes all right uh, thanks for giving me an easy one <laughs> all right here's the deal uh, I personally believe the age of the earth is undateable uh, what I mean by that the test of orthodoxy is not how long it's been here but how it got here all right, so a lot of Christians, because we take literally Genesis chapter 1, and a man by the name of Bishop Usher, uh, back in the 1800s, a genius, a mathematician, actually used the genealogies in the book of Genesis, and he was able to deduct approximately, using the genealogies in Genesis, to Adam's creation, and he dated it to about 4004 B.C., now, so a lot of Christians today would contend, well, the earth is 6,000 years old. 4,000 years B.C., it's now 2,000 A.D., so the earth is today 6,000 years old. At the time of Christ, it was 4,000 years old. I personally disagree. Not because I do not take Genesis chapter 1 literally. We're talking literal days. These aren't day ages. Um, we're, we should read it literally. It's not allegory, but if you've ever heard me teach Genesis, I'm going to maybe do a little re re review and rehearsal here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Uh, we've been taught traditionally that is kind of a, a general summary statement that God throws a big blob of silly putty into the universe, Genesis 1.1, and then over the next seven days of creation, he goes to work creating it, forming it, putting life on it, etc. I don't believe that's what it teaches. What I think it says 
and you can get maybe a DVD or a CD or the sermon online where I did this several years back. I taught through Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word created there in the Hebrew is bara. It means complete. It means perfect. It means polished. In other words, Genesis 1-1 is a, is a finished statement. It's complete. By the way, 1 John 1-5, it says God is light. In him is no darkness at all. But by verse 2 of Genesis 1, it says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Wait a minute. If God is light, in him is no darkness at all, then where did the darkness come from by the time you get to the second verse in the Bible? Light is an attribute of God, but darkness is an attribute of who? There you go. You have two kingdoms, the kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. Where did the darkness come from in verse 2? Well, there's once a cherub by the name of Lucifer. It means light bearer. But there was a day, Ezekiel 28 tells us, that Lucifer, the light bearer, the one that was created to reflect the light of God, he was on the earth. Eden was his throne. The earth was his home. Ezekiel 28 tells us that he'd been in Eden, the garden of God, as the messianic cherub, the anointed cherub. That word in the Hebrew is the same word as Messiah. You see, Lucifer, the light bearer, was the anointed cherub who was in Eden. It was his throne. But there was a day he looks up into heaven, Isaiah 14 says, and he says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on that congregation sides on the earth. I will be like the Most High. And you guys know the story. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. You bet he did. He was cast out of the third heaven into the second heaven. Remember 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said, I was caught up to the third heaven. Psalm 148 tells us there are three heavens. The first heaven, the earth and its atmosphere. The second heaven, what we commonly call outer space, the sun, the moon, and the stars. The third heaven, the dwelling place of God. He ascended into the third heaven where he was cast out into the second heaven. That's why Paul called him in Ephesians 2 and verse 2, the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 6 and verse 12, rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. So now he makes his abode in the second heavens. Now I say all that to say this, if indeed that's all true, then what that means is Adam was created after the earth. Which means we don't know how long the earth was here in Genesis 1 and verse 1. We know that Lucifer rebelled in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. All we know about what was here in Genesis 1-1 is from Ezekiel chapter 28. We know the angelic race was here. We know that there was the anointed cherub who was reigning over the angelic race. We know from uh, Job 38 and verse 7 that there were the morning stars and the sons of God. We know them as angels that sang and shouted for joy as they say, God, uh, see God lay the foundations of the earth. We know that Lucifer not only had all this bling, I mean, he's made with these jewels and gemstones, but he's literally, it says in Ezekiel 28, created with tabrets as in tambourines and pipes as in pipe organs because it was Lucifer that was leading the angelic host in their worship of the living God as God laid the foundations of the earth. But there was a day the messianic cherub decided I don't like this throne I want that throne and the war for the world was literally on and is the same war that goes on in the 21st century that Satan picked up in Genesis chapter 3 when he saw a new person in his old home sitting on his throne Adam who had what he always wanted the image and likeness of God now that's a long answer to a short question I don't know how old the earth is <laughs> I don't know how long it was here 
at the time of Christ. Does that make sense? So, um, guys, I'm not implying, you know, this is, if you hear people talk about the gap theory, I just talk about, like, you know, it's the gap fact. I'm just that convinced of it. I, I, I'll give you one of seven biblical reasons why I'm convinced. Lucifer rebelled in between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. What there means is there is a space. There's a gap in time there. Now, here's the deal. I don't think it implies millions of years. Uh, I certainly don't believe these are day ages. These are literal days in Genesis chapter 1 because God is setting up a pattern. God is a God of patterns. He wants you to know what he's doing based on what he's done. So he sets up this pattern of sevens beginning in Genesis 1. We see that same patterns in Revelation. You remember the number seven is God's number of what? Completion. Do everything God he does in seven stages to completion. Now, we know that humanity's been on the earth for about 6,000 years. There's a pattern God is establishing here. God rested on the seventh day. He took a sabbatical rest, a Sabbath rest, and God rested, yes? Now, does anybody think that that's because God was tired? He was so worn out, he had to take a break. No, 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 I don't think so, right? No, he's setting a pattern up here, isn't he? So he, he works for six days, he rests on the seventh. Then he tells the Hebrews to do what? Work for six days, rest on the seventh. Then he tells them to work for six weeks and have a festival of rest in the seventh week. Then he tells them to work for six months. And the seventh month was to be a sabbatical rest and have feasts. And then he tells them to work the land for six years. And then on the seventh year, let the land rest. He's establishing a pattern of working six, resting on the seventh. Work six, and then have a Sabbath rest. We know that mankind has been on the earth, working on the earth for 6,000 years. Now, Peter said what? A thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years, which means mankind has been at work on the earth for six days. It is 2,000 A.D., 6,000 years totally, which means we are right on the line, right on the threshold of what? The seventh day, the Sabbath rest. I'm talking about a thousand-year millennial kingdom. Amen. Don't you love Bible study? It's awesome. I have no idea what any of that had to do with Revelation, but it was good, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question. So, is that good? Okay, okay. Jeff. Thank you. Um, Revelation uh, 3, verse 5. Uh, he that overcometh, we call this white. I've got a couple of questions in one. Okay. One is, uh, sounds like they're earning that white. And who are they that, that overcometh? Okay, so Revelation 3. Yes, uh, chapter 3, verse 5. In verse 5, he yes. who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and yes. I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Okay, Correct. question. Um, yes, it sounds like the first part of that verse, sounds like uh, they had to earn that white raiment. You, you overcome something, So, and where do they have to overcome? And you know another verse to back up uh, when you said um, that, you're, that when you're born, your name is written in the book of life. Mm -hmm. Just so yeah. the devil's advocate. Oh, I, I, you know, I threw that out there up there thinking somebody will ask about it out here. Jeff, thank you. You're the guy, man. And so let's, uh, man, those are great questions. Let's dig into that a little bit more. So who are these overcomers? 
all right, that appears that, gee, we have to overcome if we want to be ones in this white raiment, if we want to be the one who have our name in the book of life. But who are the overcomers? Listen very carefully. John 16, is just one of many cross-references. What did Jesus say? In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Who are the overcomers? Those who are in Christ. You see, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you trusted in him, God placed you in him, and because you were in him 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary when he overcame sin and death, I want you to understand what that means then is you're already an overcomer. As a follower of Jesus, as a born-again, blood-bought child of God, you've already overcome. You are an overcomer because you're in him and he overcame. And so who's he talking to specifically here? He says this, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Uh, We see the white garments in Revelation chapter 19. At the end of the judgment seat of Christ, as we make way as the bride of Christ coming to the marriage supper of the Lamb, what does it say? Go back to Revelation if you want to, and you can see for yourself Revelation 19, a cross-reference related to these white garments. The bride is now adorned in white. And it says this, um, let's see, in, uh, let's see, how about uh, verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife, that's the church, has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in what? Fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so what Jesus is promising there in Revelation 3, 5 is those of us who are in Christ, who are overcomers because of Christ, there's going to come a day that indeed at the lamb and the marriage thereof, he's going to adorn us with a fine white gown, a wedding gown, that represents the purity and the holiness, the righteousness of the saints. We've now gone through the judgment seat of Christ. Remember, we've talked about this recently in the well. You go through the fires at the judgment seat of Christ, and what does it say? Your works that are wood, hay, and stubble are burned up, and all that's left is the gold, silver, precious stones. You're rewarded and awarded thereof. You come out on the other side of that fire. The blotches and the blemishes and the stains of this life have all been burned off. And there you stand now as the bride of Christ, white and clean. Now, this is very curious right here, isn't it? Look at what it says in Revelation 13, verse 5. Now, at the very end, it says this. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. Now, some like to look at this verse and contend, well, see, you can lose your salvation. You can get your name blotted out. But the reality is the implication is that your name was originally there. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has not predestined one person to go to heaven and one person to go to hell. He doesn't arbitrarily choose some. He doesn't arbitrarily choose one for damnation, another for salvation. God is not willing that any should perish. John 3, 16, God so loved the world. And that doesn't mean the third rock from the sun. It means God so loves the people of the world. 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The implication is this. Your name is in the book of life until you reject the offer of salvation, and then your name is blotted out. Jeff, that help? Okay. Yeah, you bet. And for somebody else, questions, comments, thoughts? Yep. Um, the people in the dark ages that didn't hear the truth and, and the people today that haven't heard the truth, are they condemned to hell? Did they get a chance to hear the truth after they died okay. in paradise? Let's go to Romans chapter 1 to answer that question. Okay, Romans chapter 1. Now, we've talked about a while back in the well, as we talked about the doctrine of hell and eternal damnation for those who reject God's offer of salvation. What Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12 is there will be different levels of hell. I mean, that's a true biblical doctrine, a true biblical teaching. Jesus taught, too much is given, much more is required, okay? So for those of us that have been given the full, complete revelation, you better believe we are more accountable for what we know than those who have never heard the gospel and they die without the truth. Now, here's what we do know in Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul is quite emphatic that regardless of how much you knew or if you knew, the reality is all will be accountable before God. In fact, none will have a defense before him. Look at Revelation 1, and it says these words. Let's pick it up, say, in verse 16, okay? The Apostle Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is the teaching? As we get going right here in verse 18, the implication is this. All men have a certain level of truth. Every human being has even just a shred of truth. The problem is not what they don't have. It's what they do with what they do have. They're suppressing the truth. Okay, twice in the Psalms, what does it say? The fool has said in his heart, there is no... I mean, it's completely logical to assume, even if you don't know who God is, to assume there has to be a God. I mean, logic says, this could not have got here all by itself. Somebody had to do this. Uh, children have to be taught there is no God. I remember the first time... Um, you know, I'm doing this parenting series now for a couple weeks on Sunday morning. My, the first time that uh, I, I ever tried to explain evolution to one of my kids. I mean, I, Jake was probably about the third grade, and he'd heard about this thing, evolution. He's, he's asking what it is, and I'm explaining to him what it is. As a third grade little innocent-minded kid, he literally looks at me like, are you kidding me? People believe that? I mean, it's completely illogical, even to a third grader, that all of this could get here out of nothingness, like something can come from nothing. No, it defies the natural laws of the universe. The scientific laws of the universe demand the law of cause and effect. 
for every effect, there had to be a cause. We'll trace that back far enough. There's no cause for the effect. What does that mean? It means the natural universe cannot be explained purely through naturalistic causes. There had to be a supernatural beginning. You see, what the Apostle Paul is teaching here <coughs> is that <coughs> sorry, people who maybe never heard the name of Jesus, even they have a God knowledge, a knowledge of God. The problem, though, is they're suppressing the truth. They're holding it down. Now look at what else he says here. In verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Meaning God has already put a God knowledge in the heart of every human being, a God consciousness. It is intrinsic. It's born in. Now look at what he says in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The implication here is that God has given every human being, regardless of when they've lived or regardless of where they've lived, an element of truth, a little ray of light. A God awareness, a God consciousness. The problem is they're suppressing the truth they have instead of turning to the truth they have. And the implication is that if they would just turn to the truth they have and quit suppressing the truth they have, God would give them progressively more truth and then some more truth and then yet more truth until they have enough truth to completely be saved. And whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be Yeah. The problem, you see, is not that God is hiding himself. The problem is that he has revealed himself in the things that he has made and the things that he has created. But they will not turn to the ray of light they have. They suppress that ray of light they have, which is why one day when they stand before God, they cannot accuse God. God, I would have believed if you would have just shown yourself to me. I would have believed if I could have just seen you. And you know what God is going to say? I did again and again and again in my creation, even my eternal power and Godhead. God is a trinity. He is a triune being, one God, eternal existing in three persons. Do you know what? Scientists have learned that everything in the universe is made up of how many? Three. From the tiniest elements of the universe to the largest things you can see, the things that you can't even see with the naked eye, an atom is made up of what? Protons, neutrons, and electrons. Hmm. You see, the architect of the universe has made it to reflect his nature, his image, even his Godhead. Everything is made up of threes, from the tiniest elements to the things that we can see. Time is what? Past, present, and future. Hmm, just coincidental, I'm sure. Space is what? Height, width, and breadth. Yeah, I'm sure that's just coincidental. We live in a three-dimensional place of time and space. Did you know there are three primary colors? Every single color you can behold with your eyes. It all goes back to what? Three primary colors. What are they? Red, white, and blue. Okay, I was in art once in like seventh grade. I wasn't listening for that part. Okay. Do you get the point? Everything God, he does in seven stages to completion, and he always does in threes. Do you see what he's saying? I have made myself known to you, even my Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
matter is what? Solids, liquids, and gas. You can go on and on and on and on with one example after another. Everything God does, he does in threes. Why? Because it reflects the Godhead, his triune nature. You see why he's going to look at them and say, you're without excuse. Because had you simply responded to the truth you had, I would have given you more truth and then yet more truth and then some more truth until you had enough truth to know the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the reality is not that people have never heard and that's why they'll die and go to hell. The problem is they reject what they know already. Now, you can go to Luke chapter 12 and Jesus taught that hell will be a place where there is indeed punishment that fits the crime. Luke chapter 12 would be one such example of this. You've heard of, is it Dante's Inferno? The medieval work where he talked about this, the stages of hell. You know, the reality is that's just a work of fiction, but it really is built on, on biblical teaching, biblical doctrine. All right, Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, gee whiz, Somebody took Luke out of my Bible. Who's got it? Somebody stole Luke. It's there somewhere. There it is. Luke chapter 12. All right, here it is. Now look at what Jesus is teaching here. Up here in Luke 12, beginning in verse 35. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Let's see. And you yourselves... Be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. Then when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will be found watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward when his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food for due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find in doing when he comes. Truly I say that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant sits in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and an hour when he's not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with unbelievers. And the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Now do you see what Jesus is teaching here? Based on how much had been given to that steward or that servant is directly proportional to the punishment when that master returns. Some were beaten with few stripes, some were beaten with many stripes, and one guy got sawed in two. What is the implication? We have a just God. For those that reject him will mete out a just 
punishment. Not everyone in heaven will be rewarded equally. And not everyone in hell will live in torment equally. To whom much is given, much more will be required. Jeff. So, so Jeff is asking, what does it matter if in the end they all are cast to the lake of fire? Well, I think, Jeff, the implication is this. Uh, the lake of fire is going to be hot for everybody, but for some, it's going to be a lot hotter. I mean, that's the implication. I really do uh, believe that. I think that's what Jesus is teaching. To whom much is given, much more will be required. For those who sin with their eyes wide open, that reject Jesus and the offer of salvation wittingly, knowingly, they've heard the gospel again and again and again and again, yes, the lake of fire is going to burn much hotter than for someone maybe living in a place in the world where they've never heard the gospel. To whom much is given, much more will indeed be required. One more, anybody? Yes, sir. Leonard, coming at you. Just wanted to know if you could explain Romans 9.21, please. Mm-hmm. Great. Romans 9.21. Let's go there. Okay. Oh, I'm glad you asked, Leonard. But we got a business meeting at 6, so we got 18 minutes to talk about a long answer. <laughs> I mean, this could be a whole 40-minute sermon or more. So um, Romans 9, give me the verse again. 9.21, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So Romans 9, what is the context of Romans 9? Romans 9 and the context, and what is the key to Bible study? Always putting it in its proper context. Do you understand you can prove anything from the Bible? Do you know that God told you to lie? One place he says, thou shalt not lie. Another place he says, you ought to lie. He does. Psalm 23 and verse 1, he maketh me to lie. <laughs> That's what it says. Look it up. Psalm 23, verse 1, he maketh me to lie. Oh, wait a minute. I'm taking it out of context, aren't I? You got to read the rest of the verse, the rest of the chapter. Then you get it, yes? He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Ooh, that changes the meaning altogether, doesn't it? Do you see how people take things out of context all the time to prove their point, find a proof text? So here's the deal. The context of Romans 9 is the salvation and restoration of Israel. That's Romans 9, 10, and 11. People like using Romans 9 as a proof text for election and predestination, that God chooses some people for heaven and chooses other people for hell. And if you're not one of the chosen, you have no hope for going to heaven because, well, by gum, poor you, you just aren't part of the chosen, you're not part of the elect. No, the reality, listen carefully, Romans 9 does not have to do with the salvation of individuals, but rather the salvation of nations. We're talking not about Jacob and Esau as individuals, but rather the nations that they fathered. Jacob being the nation of Israel and Esau being the nation of Edom. 
And so when you put this in its proper context, that changes everything. Uh, go back up here, and let's start back up, say, in verse 14, okay? What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. What's uh, being contested here? Verse 13, uh, verse 12. Let's go back up to verse 11. For the children, that's Jacob and Esau, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her that Sarah, the older, shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. So people say, see, God chose Esau to go to hell, and Jacob to go to heaven. No, that's not what's in view at all. He's simply saying, I have chosen Jacob to be the one to carry the Abrahamic covenant, to carry the blessing of Abraham. I've chosen Jacob the younger instead of Esau the elder to be the promised son. In other words, my Messiah is going to come from Abraham through Isaac through Jacob as opposed to Abraham to Esau. That's the only thing in view there. These two men's salvation is not remotely in view, and I'll tell you how we know, because right here in verse 13, he is quoting from the Old Testament that specifically has to do with the nations these men fathered, not these two men themselves. And so, what shall we say then, verse 14, is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Is it just that God would choose Jacob instead of Esau? Listen, it is completely just that God would choose one of Abraham's sons to be the promise bearer and the promise carrier and not the other of those sons, but none of it has anything to do with the salvation of these two men's souls. Now look what it says in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whoever I'll have compassion. So then is it not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy? For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. Now, people go back to the Exodus. He uses Pharaoh as an example. God raised up Pharaoh as his instrument. Moses came and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, oh no. Now listen very carefully. You read the, ke the text in Exodus of Pharaoh, and what it says is Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Before it ever says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so people like to say, well, see, poor Pharaoh, he had no choice because he wasn't one of the elect. No, he made his choice in his heart, and then God says, okay, I turn you over to the own choice you've already made in your heart. I'll harden your heart. So it's not that Pharaoh had no choice, poor Pharaoh. What God says is, listen, I'm going to raise you up for a vessel of honor or dishonor. You choose which one. Pharaoh, you could have been a vessel of honor. You could have let my people go, and I would have blessed you. But because you did not, now you're a vessel of dishonor. I'm going to destroy you, and that's exactly what happened. Now look at what it says here in verse 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Well, see, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Read the account. I challenge you. Pharaoh hardened his own heart before God ever hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now it says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? 
Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay for the same lump to make one vessel for honor, another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And what he might make known, the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for his glory. Do you understand what God is teaching? What he's teaching here is simply this. Every person makes a choice. God, I want to be a vessel of honor. And if you choose not to be a vessel of honor, guess what God's going to do? Make you a vessel of honor. Not honor, but dishonor. And what God is teaching is this. Because I am sovereign I'm going to get glory from you either way you choose. I'm going to use you either way for my purposes. And I'm going to use you as a vessel of honor, but if you choose to reject me, you're going to become a vessel of dishonor, and I'm going to use you that way too. But what's not in view, guys, is what you hear so often is, well, the salvation of Jacob and the salvation of Esau, and poor Esau, he was hated, and, uh, you know, he had no, no chance for heaven. No, the reality is that is a legal term in ancient days. As a, guy, as a father would come to adopt two sons, he could only adopt one of them. He is said to love one and hate the other. Don't think of the emotion of hatred. God doesn't hate Esau like we think of hatred. He's using grammar that was culturally understood in Paul's day, a legal type of description, meaning I'm adopting him, I'm not adopting him, I'm going to use him to be the promise bearer that I made to Abraham, but I'm not going to use him to be the promise bearer, but has nothing to do with this two men's salvation, but rather simply the nations they would father. Does that help, Leonard? All right, brother. God bless you, man. It's 550. Guys, love you so much. Guess what? The Chiefs game is still on. You can get in on the fourth quarter, or you can stay, and we're going to have a short business meeting. All right? You're welcome to stay. I won't be offended if you leave. We'll get rolling here uh, in just about five minutes. It'll be a very short business meeting, just a quarterly update. It's all we're going to do. Love you all very much, and I hope you have a really, really awesome day.